This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Welcome, everyone. Um, we've got Michelle here with us today. Um, I've known Michelle for, for a little while now through GEDA. Uh, Michelle is a Canadian detransitioner, um, has a really interesting story to tell, um, has written uh, a blog post. Um, so you've written your story a little bit for us, Michelle, but um, we're really excited to have you on the podcast just to, to have a conversation with you, hear more about your story, and then we'll just see where that takes us. So so thank you, and, and feel free to say anything, any words of introduction that, that you would like to start with. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Um, I figured maybe I'd just start with like how I started questioning my gender in the first place. Um, and it was 2008. I had just come out of a relationship that wasn't all that great. Um, uh, it was kind of emotionally abusive. He was very controlling. Um, and there was something I had noticed within that three-year relationship, which is that we did not have sex very often. And so I, in the back of my mind, there was a part of me that was just like, is that normal? Is that weird? And, um, I eventually found myself on an asexuality forum. Um, and within that forum, I did identify as asexual for like many years after that, but on that forum, there was a, like a sub forum that was about gender. And a lot of people in on the asexuality forum were questioning their gender identified as, I don't think even non-binary wasn't even a term then, but it was more like gender queer um, or they identified as transgender. And there was sort of, um, it wasn't specifically for just people who identified as trans. It was just an area to talk about gender in general. And one of the threads, one of one day was um, asking how many of you, what is your gender and how many of you have ever questioned your gender? And I remember writing something like, I'm a woman and I've never thought about it before. And immediately after I submitted posts, there was a voice in the back of my head that said, why not? why haven't you ever questioned your gender? And that's kind of where it started. Um, and then I guess over the next couple of years, um, a little while later, there was, um, I would just start thinking about it pretty much all the time. Um, I was also in a live journal community called Girls, so B-I-R-L-S, which it was girls who looked like boys, and it was mostly lesbians, but there was a very small percentage of female to male trans transitioners, and they were documenting their stories. And I was just so fascinated by it. And um, probably, I think that's one of the reasons that I started looking for... I was trying to reconnect with the way that I dressed when I was younger. So I grew up a tomboy and um, 
So I went to the store and was like buying men's clothes again. And as I was doing it, I guess it, it felt like I was getting closer and closer to something that I was a place that I was more comfortable in. And I guess um, it, it made me think more and more, you know, does this mean that I'm not a girl? Because the, there were just so many people around me that were online that were saying that that's, that made them not a girl, or at least in this community, it was either you're transgender or you're a lesbian. And at that time, I didn't think that I was into girls at all, which is kind of weird to think about because you know, I'm spending all this time looking at girls and being like, oh, I like all these girls. Um, and I certainly wasn't following any communities of boys and looking at pictures of boys all the time. But at any rate, um, I ident started identifying as genderqueer. And then sometime around the end of 2009, um, it was around Christmas, actually, there was a point where I just sort of was like, you know what, I think I'm going to transition. And it just, it came almost all at once, uh, like an overnight thing, almost. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was on a family vacation, I got my hair cut short. Because in my head, I was like, well, I don't want all of these pictures of the vacation of me looking like a girl. So I might as well do it. I came out to my parents like a couple months after that. And then I attended a support group for gender questioning people in Toronto. And um, at that support group, um, there, there were two facilitators. Both of them were transgender. They'd been, both had been transitioned for, I think, decades. And um, they mentioned one day that um, they knew of a clinic. They had like a, an inn with a clinic up the street that was supposed to be trans friendly. And um, they were looking for transgender patients, one male, one female, that they would be willing to basically prescribe hormones for. And at that time, the only way to get hormones would have been to go through CAMH and go through their waiting list and their whole assessment process. And you have to live as your chosen gender for a certain amount of time. So I saw, saw this as like, oh, I just got really lucky here. I'm able to totally bypass all of that. So I spoke to the facilitator. He wrote um, my recommendation letter for testosterone and sent me to that clinic. I had to get one other letter from my regular therapist because I was seeing a therapist outside of that for other reasons. And she wrote a letter saying that I was of sound mind to make the decision. And I was on testosterone by October of that year. So less than a year after I came out to myself, basically. I guess after that point, it was just as, as normal, I guess, as, as, you, as you are. Um, I, I took pictures of myself and, you know, made those... Um, montage videos with like the music in the background being like, oh, this is how I've changed over this many months. And I have um, audio of my voice changing over the first 10 weeks. And I think my voice is still the same as it was 10 weeks. Um, and around about a year later, I was like, I think it's time to book a top surgery. 
um, it wasn't covered by insurance in Ontario at that time. So I paid for it out of pocket. I actually flew down to Florida um, and had that done in January of 2012. And then uh, I guess after that point, it's, it's, there's so many years to go through. So I'm just like, how, where, let me just hit all the highlights really quickly. Um, 2012 and around the end of 2014, my, I would say my mental health wasn't doing so great. And I moved out of Toronto. I moved in with my fa like family members. Um, and about 2016, I decided that I didn't care if my body was masculinized anymore. And I stopped taking testosterone. Um, I moved back into Toronto probably about a year after that. Um, and that was, that was the time that I met the person that became my best friend. Uh, we dated for two months and then decided that it didn't work out. But we remained friends. And he ended up moving in with me a few months after that. When I met him, he was sort of going for like a femboy thing, but he was still on estrogen. And then over the next three years of us knowing each other, so until last year, um, both of us had very bad mental health. Um, I was identifying as non-binary throughout that. He identified as a whole bunch of different things over just over that period of time. I can't even remember when and what what decisions he was making but um non-binary and then identifying as a woman again and then maybe not so much and coming back and being like oh maybe I'm a guy and he was so he was very unstable and so was I we were both very unstable at that time and um both of us got surgery in those three years and I had the partial hysterectomy so I still have my ovaries um which I only chose because I wasn't on testosterone anymore and he had an orchiectomy because he wanted to stop taking T blockers. Um, he was okay with the estrogen, but he thought the T blockers were wrecking his health. To be honest, they were both wrecking his health. Um, and so at the beginning of 2020, uh, he decided he was gonna detransition back to a man and started changing his name and his gender back on all of his legal documentation and so I just sort of sat back and watched that happen. There was a part of me that kept thinking, oh, he's going to, he's going to transition back. Um, and I'm actually kind of embarrassed to have thought that at this time, but um, cause he's, he's never wavered in that and his mental health only got better after, after he decided it, it just completely did like a 180 almost. And then six months after that, there was a night where we were speaking and I was just like, I miss the solidarity that I had with other women. I don't understand why I'm still going. I'm still identifying as non-binary and going on like this. And you know what? I think I'm gonna also detransition. And um, it took me a couple of months to tell everyone. Um, my parents knew, so I decided in November of last year, my parents knew by Christmas. Um, I think everyone else knew at the beginning of this year. So in January-ish. And I think that basically gets me to today. And I, I How think, old were you? 
sorry, go ahead, Aaron. Oh, I was just going to say, when you said around 2009 is when you found the whole online gender discussion via that asexuality uh, board. Um, how old would you say you were at that time? 21. Okay. 21, 22. Okay. And the one um, facilitate group facilitator who wrote the letter for you, what, what was their qualifications for that? Were the, were the facilitators also counselors or? Yeah, they were both therapists. Um, they worked at, I don't know if I can say the name, but they're at a hospital in Toronto. Okay. They're still there as far as you know? You know what? They're probably still there. Yes. Um, I haven't looked them up in a long time, but um Anyone who is in Toronto and knows the trans community in Toronto would probably know their names. So it sounds like, you know, what we would now call like an informed consent clinic. It doesn't sound like there was much um, in the way of, of assessment or was that your experience that it was just sort of, it just reduced all of the, all of I mean, what they would call sort of barriers of, of assessment. It sounds like it all happened really quickly for you. I was probably among the first people that did informed consent in Ontario, just from being involved in the community at that time, everyone was going through CAMH. There was very, very, very few general practitioners that were willing to prescribe hormones. And this particular clinic was known to be trans friendly, basically. Um, which means, I guess, you know, it does what the activists want them to do, or it was leaning in that direction, basically. Um, so they would have been considered progressive. Um, and I had three appointments. So I think the first appointment I had, I had the referral to go there from the therapist that wrote the first letter. And then when I was at the first appointment, I think they found out that I had another therapist. So they were like, oh, you should get another letter from that therapist. And they, um, arranged for blood work. And I think during the second appointment, I would have answered a bunch of questions. I remember, I do remember going through some kind of list of like all the risks and so on. Um, and like, they didn't know a lot about the risks at that time. I don't remember ever hearing that there would be vaginal atrophy or uterine atrophy at that time, for example. Um, I, I did know that there was, there were things like you're more likely to get heart disease or stuff like that. And I don't, I don't remember anything about regret being on the list either, but, um, I did that and I signed that and the third appointment, they were like, okay, we're going to teach you how to inject testosterone now. And I was like, I was actually surprised. I didn't think it was going to be that day. Um, but yeah, that was basically the process was three appointments. Um, there were not really any psychological assessment and I missed that in, in the story, but in 2017, I had a full psychoeducational assessment with like six hours of testing over a whole bunch of weeks with like a full history that the psychologist took and everything. And she gave me all these diagnoses that apparently I didn't know I had um, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder. Well, I knew I had depression, but major depressive disorder, social anxiety. I had symptoms but not I didn't meet the full criteria for PTSD um and borderline personality disorder which I don't think I meet the criteria for anymore um and also like a learning disability um with like sequencing so by that it's she means that 
we had a test, for example, where she would ask me to define a word and I would talk around the word before getting to the actual point. And then I would be able to finally be like, okay, this is exactly what I, what I was trying to say. It just took me a little longer to get there. And I was also diagnosed with like a slow processing speed, which is pretty much along the same lines as it kind of takes a little bit longer for, for me to get to exactly what I need to say, which is one of the reasons I didn't want to do podcasts earlier in the year is because I feel like I'm so much more articulate when I'm writing something and then speaking, but I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. I think Aaron and I can both relate to that, <laughs> you know, which is why our podcast ends to meander <laughs> and, and we both, and we both enjoy writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so yeah. just, just so that we're really clear on the timeline. So that diagnosis, that assessment, the detailed assessment you had on that diagnosis was after you transitioned. Yeah. yeah, it was seven years after I was prescribed testosterone. And I feel like that should have been done before. Like I should have had, that should have been part of an informed consent. I should have had all of that knowledge to decide whether or not I was going to transition or not. Um, that was even after I was off testosterone. I stopped taking it in 2016. I had the assessment in 2017. Um Unfortunately, I had the hysterectomy in 2018. So I think some people are kind of like, well, why didn't you know? You know, but I think one of the reasons that I was in it for so long and took so long to detransition, most detransitioners I talk to are usually around like four or five years, they detransition and I took 10. And I think one of the reasons is because I was really, really caught up in social justice online. And, um, all of my friends were all caught up in it. So, you know, the moment that you feel like your whole world worldview is going to flip on its head, you're risking losing everything in terms of community support. Yeah. And there certainly aren't, um, many, if any sort of formal community supports for detransition. So I can understand, yeah. you know, your need for, for your peer group. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't have very many friends to start off with. So um, after I detransitioned, I had people, I had some of my friends and family members that contacted me saying, oh, we're going to, we, we support you, et cetera, et cetera. And one of those people basically changed his mind after I started talking about how I didn't agree with the affirm, like the affirming approach to trans healthcare anymore. And specifically it was after I said, I opposed the recent bill on conversion therapy that included gender identity. And I wrote a huge thing, basically on a Facebook post where I was explaining why I didn't um, agree with it. And he basically said that I, that I had was being transphobic and I had been transphobic over the past several months or something. And he was, hadn't said anything. And now he was not going to hold his tongue anymore. And I was like, uh, you know what, <laughs> maybe we just shouldn't be friends anymore because I don't think I want that energy in my life. Uh, and after that we had like a giant fight over, um, private messages basically. So and then after that, we stopped speaking. So that was probably the worst of what came from my friends. Uh, he wasn't even trans. 
Um, and from my trans friends, they most, mostly get silence. They're not really saying anything at all. Um, so I, I don't feel like I have any, any friend support, basically. I just have my one friend that also detransitioned where we, we speak pretty much pretty much on text every day and phone a couple times a week. So that's pretty much it for that kind of support. Um, there's a saying in, in marketing that, you know, where there's one, there's many. So, I mean, it makes completely sense, complete sense to me that if you had this experience with informed consent, that without any kind of safeguarding measures or assessment or talking things through or, or differential diagnosis, that there's that, there's that, potential for errors to be made and and for people to be harmed so it seems very reasonable to me that having the experience that you had that you would you know be throwing out sort of cautionary words of wisdom about that specific model of care and that that doesn't sound transphobic to me right that you had this this very real experience um, with a specific philosophy of care um, and if it's happened to you, who's to say how many people that's also happened to? It's hard to go kind of go back, you know, in hindsight and, and what ifs. But I mean, what what do you think? What do you think would have been helpful for you, you know, in that process that would have helped you, per, you know, perhaps um, arrive at the conclusion prior to medicalization that transition wouldn't have been helpful for you? So. Like you said, it's hard to know with the, the you know, with the what ifs. Um, early last year, so before I actually detransitioned, I wrote something where I was saying, you know, I think that if I had been diagnosed with autism earlier, maybe I wouldn't have transitioned. And it's hard to say if that would be true or not, just because I know so many people that were diagnosed before they identified as transgender. So it, it, they might have still, I might have still gone ahead and tried to transition. What I feel like now is it's not even, it's not even just the health professionals, it's the whole culture where everyone is saying it's, and I've, I've talked about this online before, where they're saying that being transgender is an, an innate property of being a person, like you're born that way. And I just don't agree that it's, I don't think it's a born that way thing. I think maybe maybe dysphoria could be a born that way thing or have biological mechanisms to it. But um, that that whole idea of this is who you are. And if you don't transition, then you're going to be miserable forever, I think, really set me on that path. So. It's it's hard to say what I would would have or wouldn't have done. In that culture basically um, in a completely different culture where we are talking about it in a logical way and saying, well, this is, this is a belief you have about yourself and maybe this is going to lessen the distress that you're feeling, but maybe there's other ways to do it too. Maybe in, in a situation where that had been offered to me, like some kind of, I guess I've, I've, I want, I wish I had gender exploratory therapy where people were just asking me, you know, why, you know, why, why are you so uncomfortable? Why are you so uncomfortable with being a woman? Um, 
and not taking, oh, because I'm a man as an answer, because that it, it's not backed by anything. There's no proof to back that you're a man. It's just completely going on in my head, basically. So what did those two, uh, when you said you, you had two letters from therapists to get the original, uh, even in that, in that kind of like pilot program clinic where they're doing a, like sort of a early days informed consent thing. What did those, what did those notes consist of? Like what, what kind of therapy was involved to get those? Was it just a case of, oh, you're mentally competent or was there any kind of assessment that went into getting those, uh, those letters? So the letter I got from um, the therapist that wrote the hormones letter I was in that, I was in that support group with him, which was like a 12 week long group where they gave you information. Um, it was all people who hadn't mostly hadn't decided whether they were going to, they were going to transition or not yet. So they were just providing a whole lot of information on hormones. And, um, there was even like one day there was someone giving a PowerPoint presentation and talked about regret rates and was like, Oh, the regret rate for surgery is less than 1%. You know, com- compare that to regret rate for knee surgery, which is like 40% or whatever. And um, anyway, the in order to get the letter, I had a one-on-one session with him that probably was like less than an hour. And I honestly don't remember what was said in that session. He probably asked questions about, you know, how long have you felt this way or, you know, have you thought about this? Um, have you done any reflecting? I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I can't even remember. It was, it was 11 years ago. Um, yeah, fair. And um, so he wrote that after uh, that one session. The one that I got from my therapist, she had been seeing me probably for a year and a half or two years at that time. She had never had a transgender patient before. Um, I was her first one. And so I basically presented the idea to her to be, I said, you know, they want me to get a letter from you saying that I'm basically competent to make this decision of sound mind, et cetera. And um, I don't, there wasn't really an assessment beyond that. I think she just thought that, oh, all right, that's, that's, that's a good thing to do. So I might as well do that. And that was basically it, I guess. I want to, um, I want to kind of um, narrow in on that on that statistic that you threw out. So that less than one percent. I mean, we hear that all the time. That's that's the statistic that people throw around that is less than one percent, um, and they compare that to you know um, rates of regret for other medical procedures like knee surgery, and saying, well, less than one percent is less than the regret for knee surgery. Um, but but let's kind of, if I could just read something here. So I've got the WPATH standards of care in front of me here. So on page eight, they talk about that less than 1%. But what they say is that, um, and I'll just read this part because it's fairly short. So the initial clinical approach largely focused on identifying who was an appropriate candidate for sex reassignment. Um, and then I'll just kind of skip ahead a little bit because they just sort of Um, reference where that came from. Um, And then this approach was extensively evaluated and proved to be highly effective. Satisfaction rate studies ranged from 87% um, in MTF patients and 97% in FTM patients. 
Uh, regrets were extremely rare, 1 to 1.5% of MTF patients and less than 1% of FDM patients. So the activists really like to quote that less than 1%, but what they forget to quote is the first part of that paragraph that says that clients were very carefully screened back then. There was an assessment process. I mean, the, the sta these standards of care were in themselves written in 2012. And this is an affirmative model of care. It's not the informed consent model of care. Um, so they still advocate for, for thorough assessment and psychotherapy because they, they go on to say, often with the help of psychotherapy, some individuals integrate their trans or cross-gender feelings into the gender role they were assigned at birth and do not feel the need to feminize or masculinize their body. So this is, this is very clear, clear. I mean, this is page eight of the, of the standards of care. And they're being very clear that there was a process by which people were very carefully screened over a period of time. And that's why they were seeing the very low regret rate. Um, and they're saying very clearly that psychotherapy can be helpful for people not to change. I mean, in conversion therapy laws that are being written now around the world, they say, well, any effort to change someone's gender identity would be considered conversion therapy despite the fact that the WPAS standards of care are saying, well, psychotherapy is often helpful not to change it and eliminate it if someone has true you know, gender dysphoria, but those feelings can be integrated into an identity. So it's not saying, no, you're not trans or no, you don't have gender dysphoria, but you know, like a, for example, like a butch lesbian who has gender dysphoria, there are lots of butch lesbians out there who don't identify as trans have never transitioned and they they found ways of integrating the gender dysphoria into a, a butch lesbian identity so i think i think that's what that that paragraph is sort of speaking to and how that can be integrated so it's so frustrating for me that that activists are throwing around that oh it's less than one percent so let's let's you know throw the door wide open to anyone that wants this and and eliminate all you know psychotherapy and all assessment you know, we can't be confident that that low regret rate will be the same unless our treatment of care and, and how we're screening patients would also need to remain the same. So it, it's so um, misinformed and, and quite dishonest to continue to throw around that low regret rate when our, when our system of care has completely changed and we are seeing more transition regret. So I just wanted to really point, you know, point that out. Um, clearly, you know, that, that that statistic is still today, you know, 10 years later being thrown around, even though um, advocates are now pushing, activists are pushing more and more in the direction of informed consent. And, and Ontario now is, is forming a, a committee with the hope of, of implementing the informed consent model throughout the province. Um, so, so what what are your what are your thoughts? I mean, I am kind of guessing what your thoughts are, but what are your thoughts about Ontario kind of taking that that move and, and considering all um, psychotherapy and assessment to be unnecessary barriers to care? Well, I did submit a brief, and we'll see if they end up deciding if they want me to participate as a committee witness. In which case, I'll get to speak in front of them. But in what I wrote in there is that um, I basically compared myself to like the canary in the coal mine. And I was just like, listen, you know, this, this didn't go well for me 10 years ago when this just started. And, you know, it didn't go well for my best friend 
um, who went through something similar. I, I don't think he actually had a whole assessment either, but I can't really speak to his um, whole process. Um, and the other part of the that 1% regret rate is it's a completely different population. Um, you know, we've got in the last 10 years, it's an explosion of teenage girls who are transitioning and young women that are transitioning. Um, the recent CTV W5 um, episode mentioned that in Canada, it was 85% of the new referrals are all girls. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's the population that was in that regret rate, really. It's most, and it, you know, it's mostly adults and this is, this is teenagers. Um, and I, I can't really speak to being a teenage trans person or detransitioner because I wasn't a teenager when I started to um, question and then eventually transition. But um, I was a young person and I was a young person with a developmental disability. So I think I'm comparable to a teenager when I was only, I was only 22 when I got on testosterone. Um, but yeah, the, the regret rate is having that trotted out every single time I try and talk about what happened to me is extremely frustrating. Um, I spoke to someone about it and he said that he'll care when the detransition rate is at 50%. Which Jesus I thought was Christ. I thought it was pretty shocking. I was like, really? Well, thanks for that. But um yeah, so in, in terms of Ontario going that direction, I think I think it's it scares me. It scares me. I'm I'm afraid for everyone that comes after me. Um I yeah, no, I'm just worried. I'm I'm worried that if that's the direction that we go in, then we're just I think everyone thinks everyone who's critical of this issue thinks that there's going to be a wave of detransitioners in the next five years because uh, around 2016 is when the numbers started exploding. If you look at the, the graphs where it's just going up and then there's like a huge jump in 2015, 2016, and then it's just gone up exponentially from that point. And, uh, yeah, that same person when I said, you know, oh, the number of detransitioners is growing, he was like, oh, well, the number of transitioners is growing, of course. Uh, but uh, I think it's going to be exponenti exponentially more, more than, more than there were in the past, basically. So the percentage is going up, not necessarily the, just the numbers. So yeah, it's the rate. It's the ratio we need to keep our eyes on, right? Not not just the numbers, but you're but you're right, absolutely right, and and the demographic of transitioners. Yeah. What you're saying is entirely different than the, than the previous populations. Is we're talking about teenage girls, and we're applying those same statistics, saying only one percent, only one percent regret this. So therefore, you know, a 16-year-old, you know, uh, identifying as trans, that's that needs to be affirmed and pushed along in a medical direction. Because again, only one percent, you know, based on a completely different, different uh, demographic, different population. That those were. Um, glean that that number was gleaned from like you're saying Aaron sorry go on yeah well, yeah because you're, you're right that that's that spike in numbers and that and that completely complete flip of the ratio of um from males mostly males to mostly females came after this WPAS standards of care as well because this like I said this was written in in what did I say 20 
12. 2012, the spike came after that. So a lot, has, a lot has changed since they quoted that statistic of less than 1%. Both the, both the, the model of care has changed. Um, the, the demographic of clients presenting to clinics has completely changed. And our whole sort of media environment uh, and the messaging around this has completely changed as well with a lot more internet, a lot more social media, a lot more online pornography, all these factors, right, that, that they're now saying are contributing to teenage onset gender dysphoria. So, so, so much has changed that it's really irresponsible and reckless for people to continue quoting a statistic based on a completely different apples and oranges situation. And even exactly. if it is, even if it is only 1%, if there are very clear ways in which we could prevent these, these things from, ha from regret happening, why, what, what's the harm in, in just asking the question, like, what can we implement? You know, like, ideally it would be zero. I mean, it, right. I'm, and if it's really kind of clear that, that cert taking certain steps or just having some kind of safety net around these, these um, services at the front end, would prevent things um, from happening like has, ha has happened to you, Michelle. What's the harm in having that conversation? Like, I don't understand why it always gets kind of rubber stamped as that's this transphobic and, and you're being a bigot and, and we're not allowed to talk about it. That seems really nonsensical to me. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of, um, there was that, uh, it's not really a study, but it was uh, like a research article that came out recently from it was Canadian trans people who were writing about transition regret in, in scare quotes, regret. Um, and their argument, I didn't read the whole thing. I just sort of skimmed, but their argument was that trying to prevent detransition is unethical, presumably to trans people. But I, I don't understand that particular, they said, you know, it's, it's unpredictable, which is true. You can't predict who's going to detransition. I know people who had child childhood onset gender dysphoria, and they ended up detransitioning. Um, then people who had it during the adolescence, people who transitioned in their 30s who ended up detransitioning. So it is, they were correct in saying that it's, um, it's unpredictable. There's no way to tell. And I also think that the, the former gatekeeping models where they were basically trying to, you know, decide who's really quote unquote, really transgender or not. Those also weren't working because people would just um, try, they, you know, they would game the system. Basically there were, there were websites. They were still, they were still with those websites when I was, when I was transitioning up, just being like, this is what you have to say. This is what you have to wear, et cetera. Um, so those weren't working either. And that was in 2009 when, uh, when those, those kind of like websites that existed to kind of coach people to say the right things and present the right way in order to, to gain. And, and those, those, um, those still exist today. You know, they're, their whole Tumblr blogs devoted to kind of, uh, you know, teaching kids, you know, what to say, or not, not just kids, but like teaching people what, you know, what is the appropriate thing to say if they do have to go to like a, a gender therapist. Uh, you know, if you're over 18, that's not even necessary for most people. You can just go and, and, and get hormones or, or surgery or whatever. But in, in the U.S., excuse me, I'm, I'm speaking uh, from, from, from down under here. But um, 
in the U.S., you can, if you're over 18, you can just you know go and access. But um, uh, uh, yeah, but that whole that whole culture of of uh, kind of intercommunity coaching has existed. Aaron, you were saying even like 20 years ago that uh, that that existed. It still exists today. And so the whole the whole notion of um, uh, uh, like um, the, the concept that that gatekeepers exist and it, it's your kind of duty as a trans person to kind of circumvent that process and 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 get what you're after is not only acceptable but there's sort of like a it's like it's admirable that you've you've overcome the cis gatekeepers to get what you need uh, as a trans person uh, and that kind of there's, there's there's like a righteous framing to it all I've noticed. Yes, actually, I did that uh, short YouTube video about that recently, um, about, you know, this word gatekeeping and, and what that means. And, and she's right that there were problems with, with the gatekeeping. And, and we're not advocating necessarily for gatekeeping as it was done in the past, um, because she's at, she pointed out, and, and she's, she's right, that, that when assessment is just a, a checklist of things that you go through it's really easy for the community to pass around okay these are the questions they're going to answer and or they're, they're going to ask and this is how you answer them and uh so it's kind of a mockery of the whole assessment process right when people are just going to kind of tell you what you want to hear anyway so i don't know that there's any way around around that and, and i think that's the limitation of any kind of a, assessment process but there's this there's this other concept that that you pointed out michelle that this other concept of exploratory psychotherapy which is very different than just you know someone with a clipboard checking off a bunch of things on a on a checklist of yep these are the things that we covered and and you answered my question satisfactory satisfactorily but it's um it, it would be very different. I mean, exploratory psychotherapy is a is a relationship. It's not scripted. It's it's and it's a it's a cooperative effort between therapist and the client. It, it's not. Um, it would be harder to to just sort of to fake that and and come to the session as a as a client with. Um, premeditated answers to these questions right it, it's a completely different process of just just exploring like you know your your feelings and and how you developed the identity you did what were some of the contributing sort of influences or factors i don't see how that would be how that would be harmful because it's not gatekeeping it's not a it's not a clinician saying yes you're trans or no you're not trans ideally it's it's a it's um a process that you both walk through together and ideally you both kind of land on the same conclusions together. So it, it's much less paternalistic and, and heavy handed. And I don't see how that would have, that would be harmful to people. Even those, even those that do go on to transition, I don't see how that, that would be harmful. Like we've had um, one of my friends, Ken, Kenneth uh, Peary on our podcast, and he's talked about, having he had to see a psychiatrist for two years prior to transitioning and then I asked him was that harmful for you to have to do that for two years before starting testosterone and he said no it was helpful because through the the questions and and, the, and that wasn't assessment so that wasn't gatekeeping that was therapy with with the psychiatrist for two years and questions were asked that at the time he might have just kind of dismissed and said well no that doesn't apply to me but 
20 years later, he's still, he's still using that information that he got from that two years with the psychiatrist. Questions were asked to help him think about things in a way that set him up for a more successful transition to navigate the weirdness of transition and the inevitable um, hardships and hiccups and weirdness of it that you encounter through life, you know, like our, it, the comp, how much more complicated it is to to date people and and all of those things. So he feels like feels that that therapy really helped prepare him for the things that he would encounter and, and that it was helpful. And so they're eliminating not only um, the safety net for people that may make a mistake and regret it, but they're also eliminating, I think, a process that sets up a more successful transition from a mental health perspective. Yeah, I was going to say that. Um... I guess the argument from activists about not going through exploratory therapy is that they take the position that transition is, is urgent and like immediately necessary. It has to happen as soon as possible. And maybe that would be fixed a little bit if there were the waiting lists in certain places weren't so long, at least then they could, you know, be having therapy while they were waiting to be, I guess, got given to like a doctor that could watch them and take care of them over the period of time that they're on, they're transitioning. Cause um, I don't know if anyone, anyone else that's watching knows, but when you're on testosterone, you have to take blood tests pretty much. I don't, I don't know how, how often you guys do it, but for me, it was like every three months at first. So um, it does require like a constant someone watching you all the time. Um that's definitely the language that's being used that any kind of, you know, this, this dirty word gatekeeping is associated with, um, with something oppressive from a social justice point of view that, that people, the, I mean, the way this, the way this tends to go is people say that I know who I am mm-hmm. and it's not for anyone else to ever say, no, you're not, you know, who you say you are and, and say yes or no to these treatments. So not only do they want it fast, but they see it as a human rights violation for anyone to want to explore, you know, those feelings and the motivations behind it as if that means, well, you're saying that I'm, I'm not who I say I am. Yeah. And that reminds me of like um, an exchange I had with a trans activist on Twitter where I was saying, um, when I was talking about how it was more difficult for me to get ADHD medication than it was for me to get hormones. Well, I wouldn't say it was more difficult, but like me coming to my doctor and saying I have ADHD wasn't good enough. I needed to have that full site when I didn't, I already had the, the assessment done, but, um, I needed like a letter from the psychologist in order to get on them. I guess it's kind of similar, but it wasn't an informed consent thing. It was, I had a whole assessment that did hours of testing to make sure that I had ADHD before I could get on stimulants. And they're both controlled substances, um, stimulants and hormones. Um, and I, when I said that anyway, I said, you know, it was harder for me to get on ADHD medication. And she said, well, hyperactivity isn't a protected characteristic, which I think it's kind of says a lot about what the activists are going for that because gender identity is a, is a protected characteristic in Canada, then they should be able to access immediately 
and have nobody question them, which I, I don't think is good healthcare. Yeah, and what consti- constitutes good healthcare is multifaceted. You know, when I um, worked for the eating, Provincial Eating Disorders Program, there were times where we had clients come to us saying, well, I want treatment at your facility. And there were times based on our clinical judgment where we said no. And it, it's not because we disagreed that they had an eating disorder. It's not because we disagreed that they could use some help for it. But there were times where people were so emotionally dysregulated at the time that with with really um, inadequate kind of coping tools to manage their emotions, to have dug into the eating disorders work at that time without those coping skills to manage the emotions that would have inevitably come up when you do that kind of depth work, it probably would have destabilized them further and created a crisis, a mental health crisis for those individuals. So there are times where we have to have a certain amount of clinical judgment to say we need to time things in a certain way to ensure best possible outcomes. So it's not as black or white as saying, you know, yes or no. It's, It's sort of like it's trying to put together uh, an ethical and, and um, clinically competent care plan for people. To, so we would tell, tell those patients, well, go and do some DBT work to, to work on your emotional regulation and develop skills you know, to manage your emotions. And then once you feel like you have a, a good handle on, on that and day, day-to-day life is a little more manageable for you, then we can start to do the eating disorders work because you'll have that safety net of coping skills to handle whatever emotions come out of the, the eating disorders work. Were clients sometimes upset to hear no? Absolutely. But it was a safeguarding measure for them to ensure best outcomes. And I think the same similar principles apply to trans care, that a no doesn't necessarily mean, well, no, I don't think you are who you say you are. I don't think you have gender dysphoria and I don't think you would benefit from this treatment. It might just be you need to do some mental health work beforehand or whatever that is, or stabilize your physical health beforehand. Like we need a certain amount of assessment in order to care plan and manage um, for a successful outcome, even if someone is going to, you know, move on to, to transition. So it, it's, it's not as black and white as activists sometimes make it out to, to be. Yeah. And then I, I, I think people should remember that, you know, a no now is not a no forever sort of thing. Because um, if, somebody, own- if somebody's like come, comes to you and they're so distressed, they're saying, I'm suicidal, I'm, I think I'm going to end things unless I get hormones. Well, if they're that, if they're in a cri- that degree of a crisis, just starting them on hormones in itself isn't, isn't going to fix that crisis because now they have to also navigate, like I said, the weirdness of transition, that, that it's, it's stressful, you know, having to renegotiate all of, all of your relationships. And it's a major life upheaval and, and it can be really stressful. Um, so if somebody is at the point of, I am so dysregulated, I'm in crisis. I don't know that that's really the time to be embarking on this major complicated life change is just adding more stress onto that that individual that that doesn't seem like mentally health competent care to me not that that was the situation for for you but but in your case um now that you have some diagnostic clarity um we we know and we have known for quite some time that there's a correlation between 
you know, autism and, and, and gender dysphoria and AS, and um, ADHD and, and gender dysphoria. So knowing that that is a well-documented correlation and pretty high numbers as well, like what, I don't understand why it wouldn't be just part of standard practice to do that, to do some, some assessment for autism and, AD, and uh, ADHD as part of, of the transition process. Yeah. And um, I think it's even in WPATH standards of care, they have like a section that lists a whole bunch of diagnoses that are almost, it's almost like a differential diagnosis section where it's just like, all these things might interfere with someone's gender dysphoria. Basically there's, I can't remember where it is, but it, I know it's in there because I've quoted it before. And I, I think I had almost every single one that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've had people be like, are you sure you have all these diagnoses? And I'm, I'm sure it's not necessarily that I have all of them. I just have symptoms of many. Um, just so many of them overlap. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it should be part of the assessment should involve looking at specifically developmental disabilities like autism and ADHD. Um, I was going to say that I'm, whenever I think about um, that whole process of someone coming to the doctor and saying, I'll, I'll kill myself if you don't give me this particular treatment, it reminds me of something I went through with my, um, with my friend slash roommate when he was living with me. We were, he had um, other health problems, um, like physical health problems. He had a lot of head pain. And we were in the emergency room once and he was basically just having a meltdown because he was in pain and the doctors hadn't done anything. He'd seen doctors so many times. And he told them, he's like, if you don't do a test, I can't remember what test, but like, you know, a CAT scan or something, if you don't do any tests, I'm going to kill myself. And they sent him to the psych ward. And why aren't we doing that same thing with people who present with gender dysphoria saying, I'm going to kill myself if you don't give me hormones you don't recommend immediate mental health treatment. It just, it feels like a, a weird double standard. There are guidelines. I, I, someone sent me guidelines from, I think they're fairly new. I don't know if it was last year or earlier this year, uh, was presented at a conference in, at Dartmouth U- University. And it was guidelines specifically um, about the, the treatment of gender dysphoria in the context of, of a, um, also having an ASD diagnosis. And their recommendation was that anyone that had um, an ASD diagnosis presenting to a gender clinic, that there should be um, an ASD specialist brought in as part of their care whenever possible. So people are thinking about this, um, but how much it's actually you know, in practice is kind of yet to be seen. I was involved for a few years in, I guess, the autism advocacy community, self, self-advocates. So and the distinction is important just because autism advocacy is usually overrun by parents. Um, but this sort of self-advocacy movement has kind of grown in the past, um, I guess, 20, 20, 30 years. Um, but and I think part of the reason that it's gotten bigger is because, you know, the, the, di- the diagnosis and the diagnostic criteria got bigger. It used to be, um, 
Asperger's was like a specific separate diagnosis, and then it became part of the autism spectrum, um, which has caused a rift, of course, because, you know, what um, there's, there's levels apparently to the diagnostic criteria, level one, two, and three, and what like a level one person who might've formerly been known as someone with Asperger's syndrome, what they need is completely different than someone who is non-speaking might need, who is like level three and needs constant care. But um, where I was going with that is that when I was within that community, it was apparent that there were a lot of people that uh, were transgender or had gen were gender questioning. And I think that it would be really interesting to hear from autistic people talking about why they think gender and autism intersect. But at this time, the mainstream movement is very much, um, it's caught up with that same gender ideology where if you're, you're trans because you're trans and you're born that way. So no one's really looking any deeper into it, I don't think. And I have done that. And I've, I've uh, seen parents also talk about it. Um, but uh, specifically in like, in regards to like sensory differences, for example, um, uh, autistic people have difficulty with something called proprioceptive sense, the sense of proprioception, which is basically like where your body is in space. So if you move your arm, you might not know exactly where your arm is. And so, for example, when with for me, where it's not not as uh, severe as someone who is like level three, I, I might pour a glass and like spill or knock something over when I am, or I bump into things. Basically I had, when I was young, young, I had bruises all down my thighs because I would just walk into things all the time. Um, and then another one is like interoception, which is basically the feeling of inside of you. And I think that's actually part of why I, identified as asexual was that um, part of that is that I was not feeling when I was aroused. Um, and then other parts of that, like when, when you're growing up, a lot of um, autistic people will wet the bed very, very late into life. And it's because they just don't feel when they have to go. Um, and I wonder if that has something to do with gender, the having that disconnection from your body, basically. Um, and I wish that more people in the autistic community would write about that and talk about that in a way that sort of relates, you know, um, the feeling of gender and gender identity to, I guess, the sensory system and, and the experience of being an autistic person. But at this time, it feels like if you try and explain it away in any way, then you'll probably get shunned out of the community. <laughs> That's that's a really interesting point because I feel like we do go um, like within the trans discourse we talk about a lot of overlap with ASD conditions, uh, but you're basically saying going going the opposite direction is like within people who are who have ASD diagnosis within the autistic autism community to talk about the relationship with gender like going from a different different angle there. Yeah, and like they do talk about it. They'll talk about that overlap a lot but it doesn't seem to hit the same 
sort of depth that they will when they're talking about other aspects of being autistic, like just based on things that I've read and articles from people who are autistic explaining their own experiences. It doesn't seem to go as deep as, oh, this is why I identified as transgender. It's more, um, it's more social almost, I think. It's more them concentrating on things that are very, very surface rather than trying to find something that's much deeper, like, oh, well, it's because that's how I experience the world, literally, with like, physically, this is how I experience the world. And maybe that's that disconnection from the body and, and not having that same experience is why I'm, we're more likely to identify as trans or, and I, I mean, I've read, um, and I think it was Lauren Black that wrote articles about um, gender dysphoria being like a combination of dissociation and rumination. And I think, I think autism just sort of hits that right on the spot is that when you're autistic, you're also really likely to become obsessed with things, very specific things, have special interests, and then be just only focused on that for long, long, long periods of time. And that must have been, that's part, probably part of what happened with me is that I got, intro, I got introduced to the idea of, of being transgender and of gender identity, and I was just obsessed with it for years until that obsession sort of waned around 2015, 2016, where I just didn't care anymore. But by that time, I was so far into social justice culture that I couldn't really just sort of turn around. And also, you know, it's, it's that um, sunk cost fallacy where you put so much into it. So might as well keep going kind of thing. It's yeah, not especially when your entire community is like your entire social network is is in that in that same milieu milieu. So you're you're kind of giving up everything all at once. Uh, sorry, go on, Aaron. I was just going to say that you know um, it's not uncommon for people with autism to be um, at least appear gender nonconforming as as well because um, if you're not picking up on social cues in the same way, or, or you just don't you know, care about conforming to those social cues, um, then people may like have mannerisms or, or, or styles of dress or, or hairstyles or, or whatever, sort of visual cues that, that don't necessarily match the, the um, social conventions for their, for their sex. Yeah, and, they, and I know I took those, um, those truth, those were true for me. And I took those, um, you know, descriptions of myself as meaning that I was trans rather than meaning that I was autistic. And that's why having the diagnosis made me, it took a little while for it to me totally integrate it, but eventually made me think, Oh, you know what, maybe this wasn't, this wasn't being trans the whole time. This was uh, me being autistic the whole time. Like when I looked back at my childhood, for example, um, I would think back and to be like, oh, well, I never fit in. And, you know, I did, I, I had friends that were girls, but they all seemed to hate me sort of behind my back. Um, I was bullied a lot when I was a child just for, I guess, being, being impulsive and just saying things, whatever came to the top of my head without really thinking about it. And, um, 
and and even sensory things like when I was a I was a tomboy gro- growing up I didn't want to wear dresses and but I had it was it was partially almost it had had to do with like sensory things where I didn't want to feel wear lace because I didn't like how lace felt against my body or anything that was anything that was more than one fabric almost like it had to be the exact same all over my body instead of something that was I guess differing if it was too tight in one area I need something right now that's like right now I'm wearing something that's loose everywhere and not like something tight right around here otherwise I'd be hyper focusing on why why is it tight right here all the time um and I took all of those things like, oh, I didn't like, I didn't like girl clothes and I didn't fit in with everyone. And and I looked back on it and went, oh, that's because I'm trans. And then seven years later, when I got the diagnosis of autism, I was like, actually, maybe that was because I was autistic and it made more sense than being, I guess, born in the wrong body. So and you got the the autism diagnosis about a year after you decided to transition. Did you kind of start to get like when you decided to transition? Like, what was that internal process going on? You said it was around 2016. Um, were you kind of already like learning about like autism traits and going, wait, maybe that's what's going on for me instead? Or did you did you kind of unpack the gender stuff and then find out about the autism thing? Um, just to correct. I didn't get the di- I didn't get the diagnosis until seven years after I was on testosterone. Okay. Okay. So it was actually a lot longer than that. Um, it was a year after I stopped taking testosterone. Sorry, that's what I, I meant. Like you said, around 2016, you decided to to um, uh, to stop taking testosterone. And then you said it was a year later that you got the the autism diagnosis. Right? Yeah. And before I got the diagnosis, the reason I went for the diagnosis is because someone suggested that I might have ADHD. And so I wasn't even thinking about autism yet. I was thinking about ADHD. And so I I went for that and, and then got the, the diagnosis and I wasn't really thinking about gender stuff anymore at that time. Um, it was almost just sort of moved to the back of my head. I, I was, I didn't care about it anymore. I was more interested in you know, learning about ADHD traits, uh, that became an obsession for a bunch of months where that's all I was reading so many books. And it even took probably a few more months before I even started looking into autism as well, because I wasn't as, I wasn't quite ready to face that part yet. I was still busy with like the ADHD part. Um, but I wasn't relating it to gender. And I, I feel like, I feel like the psychologist kind of did me wrong because she knew I identified as non-binary and that I had the, the history of being transgender, but it was never brought up at all in the psychoeducational assessment. Um, like it was never questioned. It was never suggested that maybe all of these diagnoses had something to do with my gender. She just kind of glossed over it entirely, didn't mention it at all. And I feel like maybe if she had said something, I would have, it would have clicked earlier. Mm. So I, I think that was another experience with like the affirming approach where they just say, oh, okay, that's what you are. And then not tie anything else into it. Yeah, you're saying- it's all simple and all about gender. Yeah, what what you were saying about just the it sounds like there's sort of been a uh, 
a cultural shift or an ideological shift within the ASD community. And, and there's something similar that's happened in um, the DSD community as, as well, where, I mean, some, D, some DSD activists are really wanting to separate the concept of, of trans from, um, from intersex conditions, you know, because DSD biology tends to kind of get appropriated and, and misused and distorted by, by trans activism about what that actually means and use it as evidence of like a gender spectrum or, or a third sex. And, and that for a lot of people with DSDs, that's, that's quite an offensive and, and it's just not true, right? I mean, most DSDs, the vast majority of DSDs are sex specific, but the, that ide ideology and that culture is creeping into um, the DSD advocacy groups and, and some have full, full on um, embraced the idea that as someone with a DSD, that they are non-binary or, or a third sex. Um, so it's, it's, it's these ideologies have really crept into a lot of institutions and, and communities and conflating a lot of completely unrelated conditions. I mean, similar to your story, I feel like, you know, I mean, I was diagnosed with a DSD before I adopted a trans identity. Um, so it's, that part is, is, is different than what you experienced because you didn't have that information until after you decided to transition for and had been trend on testosterone for quite some time. But I did have the diagnosis of a DSD, but as I've learned things over the years and unpacked things, I, I, I mean, I would say that a lot of my experiences could be better explained by the DSD, not from, not from a trans identity. Um, but I mean, these, this is how life goes sometimes, right? That we, we don't always have the information that we, that we most needed at the time to make a sound decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about, about it being, the ideology being so much in the culture, not, not just for the fact that we're, we're, we might be missing other diagnoses, like in my case, but um, just when I think of how, you know, 10, 20 years ago, if there was a child that was like an effeminate boy, everyone would be like, oh, he's going to grow up to be gay. And now it's because it's the culture now where trans is so mainstream, basically, a lot of people will see an effeminate boy and then the parents might ask them, are you a boy or a girl? And I think, you know, that's starting to become an in influencing in that way, how it's, it's, um, it's not gone from something that we all accept. It's got, it's gone from something that we're all constantly thinking about and almost pushing on other people. And similar to, to, you know, that assessment process, I mean, so there are checklists, uh, assessment checklists. So there's one in Ontario, I think from like rainbow health or something where they, there's a checklist of things that they expect people to cover. Um, and they do mention some, um, diagnoses that, that could be mistaken or sort of that, uh, what is it? I'm trying to find the word, the differential diagnosis, but they, they don't really, so they say, ask about those things, but they don't really say, well, what do you do? So you've asked the question, but now what? Like, so what do you do if those things exist, right? Because I'm sure there are people who have autism and, you know, the, the classic gender dysphoria. I mean, those two things probably do simultaneously exist in some cases, but it's, I found it really frustrating um, 
to do assessment like the, it, there's just so little oversight and so little training on how do we really do this meaningfully you know it, it, so that it's not just a checklist that I'm, I'm just checking off I've asked these questions so my job is done right but how do we think critically about these things that we're asking and and the information that we're getting it, it, what things, what what different differential diagnoses are there, right? Like what things could be mistaken for gender dysphoria? So they kind of admit that that can happen because otherwise why would it be on that checklist? But there's no direction about how do we think through that meaningfully when those things do you know, appear in the, in the, yes, yes, I've just, you know, in the affirmative that that person has that diagnosis that there's, I was going to say something about, about the DSD thing too. Oh, just that, that that's not one of the things that they really routine, that they routinely screen for. I mean, some ask questions about it and do a physical exam, but I've heard some say that they don't really, unless there's some sort of obvious um, anatomical um, ambiguity that can be seen from a basic physical exam, they don't dig deeper into whether there could be a, D, uh, a DSD going on for that person. And yet my DSD wasn't, immediately apparent from my just my external anatomy it was only discovered um because i had internal surgery and unless i had had that internal investigation my dsd probably never would have been discovered and and i know another guy that his dsd was discovered he had already been on testosterone he had already um I think had the hysterectomy and the mastectomy and everything. And then he went for the bottom surgery, got an infection from the bottom surgery. So they were doing a lot of like um, internal exploration just to, just to locate this infection. And that's when they discovered a DSD. So it, it seems like there, there are a number of different things that are getting missed diagnostically um, by not doing, you know, deeper and more meaningful and, and thoughtful assessment. Yeah. And that is interesting. Like what you, where you were saying is like, so that, that differential diagnosis, even if you do come up, you know, it, it becomes apparent that there is like, um, you know, uh, also an ASD condition going on or a DSD or, or some kind of thing that's often overlapping with gender dysphoria. Uh, yeah. So what, what happens then? So if they say, oh, no, it's actually this, let's go take care of that. It's like the, the transactivist response to that, or even what like the, the mechanisms currently in place, the response to that is going to be, well, that's, that's, that's still gatekeeping bigotry. Like that's still, uh, you're still denying this person their trans identity. And like, so no, no clinician is actually going to be able to go in that direction of, okay, let's explore, you know, uh, you know, maybe treating your, you know, your, your ADHD or, or like, wh what would that even look like? I, I think that's kind of what you were getting at, Aaron, is like, how, where do they even go from there? It's like, so it's written in the W path that these things can overlap. But I don't even think, obviously, WPATH is going to go in, uh, in, in the direction of, of okay, let's, let's explore that instead of a, a trans identification because, um, yeah, everything, everything just funneled into, into, into uh, you know, going in the direction of trans. Um, yeah, sidetracked there. Just, yeah. Mm -hmm. So go on, Michelle. Oh, I was going to say, um, uh, it, that, again, reminds me of something I, I had an exchange about. Um, when I was talking about how I wish I had known that I had autism before I was given a prescription and, you know, the response was basically like, oh, well, I'm pretty sure you don't want doctors to like being all paternalistic, being like, oh, well, you can't make that decision. You don't, you don't want, you don't want, you know, your bodily autonomy to be taken away just because you have autism. And I mean, that wasn't the argument that I was trying to make. I was like, I just wanted to know that I had it 
before I was actually prescribed anything. But I mean, the reality is that, you know, sometimes developmental disabilities do prevent you from making decisions that are the best for you. I'm not necessarily, I don't think necessarily that it should mean that you can never transition, but it should be a factor in it. Um, there's um, a D-trans woman online who has been on Twitter, who's been talking about um, her efforts to get breast reconstruction covered. And um, one of the letters that she got back was, it was basically the insurance company was acting as if, first of all, acting as if like, oh, we're worried that you'll change your mind. And why didn't you say that the first time when she got the mastectomy, first of all? And then it all, they also brought up her autism diagnosis to be like, oh, well, you know, this might be one of the reasons that you can't make this decision. Why didn't you say that the first time? It's just, it's very bizarre. It's a really, really sick double standard right there. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I've heard women who have, um, you know, like horrible period pains or something, and they they know that they don't ever want children, and they've gone to their doctor saying, "Can you just do a hysterectomy?" Because I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not planning on have children, on having children, and this pain is is awful. And being told, "Well, no, you can't," because what if you change your mind? So it is such a double standard, right? That it, it, I'm sure if she had gone to her GP saying, "I'm trans, I want a hysterectomy," it would have been it would happen right away. Well, that's what happened to me. So, um, and when I talked about that on Twitter, I got a few people responding, women saying, oh, it's, it's been such a struggle for me to get a hysterectomy, even though they literally are having health problems because of, because of their uterus. And in my case, I had a completely healthy uterus that, um, I mean, I, I said in that, in that thread, I, I don't, I don't even understand why I went through with it. I just, I have so little memory of what was going on in my mind at that time. Um, I think it was just mental illness. I just sort of was dissociating from everything. My, my best, my best guess was that, um, I just didn't want to have pap smears or have a period anymore, which I think is such a terrible, um, excuse to get rid of a whole functioning organ. Um, but all these people saying, oh, I had already had two children and they wouldn't let me have a hysterectomy because what if I might have want another one? And I have zero kids. I can never have my own kids now. Well, I mean, maybe if I had IVF, but um, I can't get pregnant, I can't give birth. So why didn't they have that same sort of attitude towards me at all at any point? It was never, I think they did speak to me about having kids and I was like, oh, we'll just adopt. But I didn't know like the realities of how difficult it is to adopt and how difficult it is to even do a surrogacy, which is, you know, um, a controversial subject in itself, but, you know, they, they never really went through, you know, how difficult it will be to have children if you can't get yourself pregnant. So it's, it's crazy how, it'll be so difficult for some people and, and so easy if you just declare that you're not a woman, they'll give you a, a whole hysterectomy. And uh, that one was covered by insurance. Um, I think that was part of the reason I went for it was just like, oh, well, and it, it made the decision so much easier for me, which I'm, it made it rather, not so much the decision, but making some, the the impulsive decision to be like, oh, well, then I can just have it done. 
And if, if I had to pay for it, I don't think I would have ever had the hysterectomy. So. And even people that, um, you know, transition and say that they're happy with their transition, it's not uncommon for people to say, but there were still things along the way that I hadn't thought of, you know, that, that, that pop up. It's hard to predict all the different variables and, you know, we can't control all those variables. We can't control how other people respond to us. We can't, you know, we can't predict, um, you know, a bad surgical outcome. I mean, all of those things happen that are beyond our control and it's, and it's complicated and it, it doesn't always work out the way that we expect it's going to work out. People that we think are going to, are going to be supportive aren't always and, and vice versa. Sometimes people that we think are, are going to be um, unsupportive end up being some of our, our biggest supporters. So it's, um, yeah, it's complicated and, and just so many variables. And I don't see how it's informed consent if they're not properly informing people, right? Like if you didn't have the information about um, your autism diagnosis, for example, and, and, uh, and what all the different symptoms of autism are and how that might have um, informed your trans identity, how is that informed consent then? That's what I keep asking myself. That's um, basically what even before... I ended up choosing to detransition when I was first thinking, you know what, maybe I wouldn't have transitioned if I had known earlier. That was when the question started coming up being like, did they, did I really have informed consent if I wasn't even informed about everything that it could possibly be and was only, you know, I, 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 I had a specific pathway in mind for myself. Like this is the treatment that I want. And, you know, it, yeah, it might've been at that time, I didn't want anything else. And maybe I would have been annoyed if they had recommended therapy instead, but, you know, looking back on it, like I would have rather been annoyed than have ended up losing my fertility at the end of it. So. What would you say in terms of the, the impact on you in, in the here and now uh, you've mentioned the the fertility aspect of it and, and just the loss of, of that ability to have your own children um, you know, biologically. So what would you say are some of the other ongoing, um, just the, you know, the impact on you as a result of, of having made that decision to transition and then detransition? So earlier this year, um, I actually, I, I'm still registered at a fertility clinic right now. Um, to potentially do IVF, um, but I've gone back and forth on whether I want to actually go through with it or not. And maybe, maybe that's a good thing. You know, like I, I think about, so, so my experience with the fertility clinic, and I think about that versus how I was able to get um, access to like transition care so quickly. So earlier this year, I went to the fertility clinic because um I was very, very, very certain that I wanted kids um, at that moment in time. And if it was fully funded and I was able to access it right away, I would have, you know, would have done the procedure like immediately. And now it's, um, there's a waiting list for funded IVF um, and it's not even fully funded. It doesn't cover like medications, which still cost thousands of dollars, but it covers sort of just the procedure of, removing eggs and freezing them. And even now we're maybe, maybe six months later, maybe not even six months. And now I'm once again, I'm not sure if I want to do it or not. And I compare that back to 
with transition, you know, maybe if I was on a wait list, maybe I would have changed my mind. Maybe I would have suddenly been like, mm, I don't know. Um, but anyway, in regards to the impact of being infertile, um, back when I was first pursuing it, I had a lot of days where I was just crying all the time. Um, thinking about, you know, um, I'll never give, uh, my nieces and nephews cousins. Um, and thinking about like, I guess the family aspect of it and those relationships and feeling like maybe I'm missing out on something that my brother and sister might, uh, my brother doesn't have any kids, but he might, um, that they, they've gone forward and it feels like they're moving on with their lives and I'm still behind and maybe we'll never have kids. And it's, it's been tough. It's uh, but it's also another thing where I'm just sort of maybe it's making me think, you know, maybe a waiting, waiting period of time would have been better for me, even with transition. So I'm being forced right now to go through a waiting period, even though I didn't want to. So I wasn't able to make an impulsive decision. And I've, I've realized that I've changed my mind, although I might change my mind again. But um, yeah, maybe the waiting isn't such a bad thing. How long is the wait list? Uh, when they told me it was two years or a year and a half. And, and even then, like it, when I go through the process, it's going to be, you know, we're just freezing embryos. Um, it's not actually someone will be pregnant and then I'll have a baby in nine months. It'll be just freezing embryos so that I have the possibility in the future. But um, one of the reasons I, I was rethinking it was that in the past few months, I was reading what other people are, other detransitioners have been sort of um, looking into. Uh, one of them was looking into the, I think it was the East Germany doping scandal where they had... Um, there was a government funded program to give, I think it was, I think it was testosterone, but it was androgens by any chance um, um, to female athletes who then had health problems for basically the rest of their lives. Um, And a lot of them had deformed children. So children with like clubbed feet or other birth deformities. And there was a part of me that just sort of, recoiled and was like, what if I go through IVF just to have a child that has a disability because of something that I did to my own body? And so that scared me. So that, that was part of the reason I was started to rethink it. Jeez. I hadn't even thought about that part. What supports would you like to see created um, for those that do regret transition? Um, support groups run by actual health professionals would be start would be a good start the thing i'm i'm very frustrated about for myself is that i was put through all of those things i was put through on the path of transition and then at the end of it chose to detransition and those same health professionals that had all of the information that were supposed to be trans friendly and so on have nothing about detransition you know, uh, I don't think any of my, the professionals I work with are ever going to admit that, you know, they were part of it and they weren't, they're not going to say, I'm sorry, if they're doing that, <laughs> they're admitting that they were, they were liable for it. So I don't think I'm ever going to get that from them. But um, I, I feel like that community support is the big, the big thing, just because so many of them lose it. Um, but in terms of other supports, um, 
within the bill that's coming up in Ontario, I've suggested that, you know, they're, they're talking about trying to get insurance to cover transition related procedures that have never been covered before. So like electrolysis and, um, they said chest contouring, maybe facial feminization surgery, et cetera. And I proposed in that uh, brief that I sent uh, that they, they cover detransition procedures as well. Um, they cover breast reconstruction. They cover, you know, testicular prostheses if you've had an orchiectomy. I, the, the main part is that I feel like um, healthcare professionals aren't, they're not prepared. They're not prepared to deal with detransitioners at all. And um, I guess another part of the frustrating part about it is um, after detransitioning and sort of coming back with a completely different worldview, you're faced with sort of all these people that haven't come around to your way of thinking. And um, I know it's harsh to refer to, you know, that being part of that mainstream narrative and that activism that's being pushed, it's harsh to refer to it as like a cult, but it feels like you've escaped a cult, but the entire world still sides with the cult, or maybe you could refer it to like an abusive relationship. It's like coming out of an abusive relationship and no one will admit that you were abused. So it's, it's really, even though I, I feel like, you know, healthcare professionals do have their place in it where they need to start figuring out how to, how to help detransitioners, um, what I'm really hopeful for is that, you know, more of larger society actually recognizes that they're, you know, detransitioners don't necessarily, you know, we, we had our own part to play in it. We're, we're responsible for some of what we went through, but um, that idea that we are the soul that we have to take sole responsibility for the choices that we made as if no one else was involved, as if the culture wasn't, involved that as if we it was impossible that we were influenced at all um once they start accepting that you know it's not just me that made that decision it was other people who it was people who made the decision to prescribe me testosterone it was people who made the decision to do surgery on me it was all of the people i spoke to who told me that not feeling like you belong means that you're trans when it could just have meant that i was autistic or you know social media culture is just, it's everything. It's not just, I didn't make the decision in a vacuum basically. So it would be helpful, I think, to detransitioners if people would stop saying, oh, you made the choice, you did it. You're the, you're the only person, you're not a helpless victim, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, you know, I'm, I don't think I was a helpless victim, but um, it would be nice if at least people just admitted that there was influence involved at all. So. And if there were people that were un, unhappy or unhappy is a, you know, an understatement, but if people were harmed by any other clinical system, whatever that was, whether it's a mental health system or a, a medical health system, if people were saying, well, I think, I think the system can be, be improved, right. To, to reduce the harm that it's doing. I can't imagine a bunch of people with diabetes saying you're anti-diabetic because you're calling out, you know, a harm of a particular, you know, process or, or system as part of the care. It's, 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 it's a strange phenomenon that we're not allowed to, um, to kind of question or push back on the system of care without being labeled transphobic. It is very weird. And, you know, and we're starting to see data now from, from recent DTRANS studies, you know, like Dr. Lippmann's 
I think hers is the most recent one. And I mean, this, the stats seem pretty clear from, from multiple studies that the majority of people who detransition um, are same-sex attracted and a lot of them, a lot of the same-sex attracted females. And yet I've known female, gay female detransitioners who have tried taking detrans resources to LGBT resource centers and being told, no, we, we won't, we won't have that on our shelves because that's transphobic. You know, so I feel like the whole system, the whole LGBT system, you know, for any gay or lesbian person that's been harmed by this system, when the entire LGBT community is full steam ahead with with the gender ideology, it must be especially marginalizing when your own community is, you know, alienating you and and calling you transphobic and erasing your experience. I feel like the LGBT community has really failed a lot of gay and lesbian people. Yeah. Um... And that's something I thought of in in terms of the fact that I'd like to try dating women now, just because I've never had satisfying experiences with men. Um, but when I look look forward to it, there's just a part of me that's just like, I'm I'm so concerned that anyone, the majority of people that I try and date are probably going to sort of have that same narrative where they think I'm transphobic, essentially despite the fact that I was trans for 10 years. I was gonna say um, in terms of people trying to bring detrans resources to like LGBT centers and having having them taken away, or I, 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 I know one person who brought them there and they agreed to put the, the resources out and then she came back and they were gone basically. <laughs> um, but um, it's weird, it's almost like they think that um, maybe not think it, but maybe there's a, there's a part of them that wonders, you know, if we, we talk more about detransitioners then more people might detransition and maybe they're afraid of that a little bit. I've, I've always made sort of the comparison. Like if you think that I could have been, you know, cause I, I lived with someone who detransitioned. If you think that I could have been influenced to detransition, then why don't you think I could have been influenced to transition in the first place? And the cult, the cult parallels are very strong there in that, or the religion in general parallels, because it's like, if you are, if you're among the fold, you know, like that's, that's good. It's good to be among the fold. It's good to be trans. It's good to be a part of this belief system. Um, and then if you, if you extricate yourself from that, because it didn't work for you or, you know, for whatever reason, you no longer believe it, um, then, then that's seen as you are anti whatever that is. So like, like if you, if you are, you know, of a certain faith and then become an atheist, the, the constant, the, the understanding within those still in the faith is that you hate God, right? That you are, uh, that you've been influenced by people who hate God. Now you also hate God and the same kind of uh, men, mind frame seems to be applying to the whole detransition. Uh, uh, you know, people who detransition is like that same kind of concept of of this person has been influenced by a transphobic world to now be to be transphobic as well. Uh, so it's it's just these weird cultural influences that are all kind of converging simultaneously. Where you've got you know a, a medical establishment that's on that's working in in concert with with this this kind of religious mind frame, and then. You have this notion that um, well, it's like the, there's it's, it's so it's so crazy that you know children that that 
trans is glamorized and, and glorified. Um, and then, but then if, you know, once you, once you've traveled down that, that path of transitioning and then realize, no, this isn't, this wasn't for you. It's like, oh, well, you were just wrong. You, you, um, you know, you did this to yourself. You, you, you thought you were trans when you weren't, when, when really you're existing in this culture that tells you that trans is good. Trans is pure. Trans is what you want to be. Anyone who isn't is either uncool or a bigot. You know, it's like um, uh, everything is just pushed in this direction that trans is good. And then if you, you know, again, uh, detransition or, or whatever, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought just because I, it's like you've got two, two systems going on here where it's a medical condition that has to be treated, whereas it's also a, uh, a, a religious movement simultaneously. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult to, 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 to kind of look at each one individually, but they're also completely contradictory simultaneously. Um, I'm not sure if any of that made sense, but. Yeah, it's kind of unavoidable to draw some of the, the religious parallels with, with the system, right? And I would say that some of the markers of, of a healthy spiritual community versus a more, I'll try not to use the word, word cult, though there's lots of parallels, but let's say a healthy spiritual community versus an unhealthy spiritual community. I mean, I would say the markers of a healthy spiritual community are ones where the, you're allowed to experience doubt and you're allowed to ask questions and you're allowed to disagree and work through those disagreements. Um, and when a community becomes such that, um, you know, that you're not allowed to do those things, it, it is cult-like. And and I would say that, that that's exactly what's happened with, with this belief system around what gender and trans is, is we're not allowed to question it. We're not allowed to disagree. We're not allowed to think critically about it and without being kind of labeled a, a heretic and, and kicked out of the community. Yeah. Um, there was a, there's a very, very long essay at newthoughtcrime.com where uh, it was written by, a, she either detransitioned or she's a desister. I can't remember, but um she wrote a very long essay about um, Robert J. Lifton's uh, eight criteria for thought reform and um, goes into those in detail and then talks about how those things sort of play out in the trans community. And um, those criteria are things like um, loaded language. So it's the redefining of words that everyone knows a definition for, but within your community, those words mean something different. Um, there's a one criterion called mystical manipulation where um, the people who are, I, there's no one in charge in the trans community really, but um, there are people who I think are considered bigger authorities than others. But um, within the narrative that you're given, you're, um, almost reframing your past experiences to fit that narrative, which I think a lot of people who are just starting to question whether or not they're trans, they, they have the narrative and then they're just fitting all of their experiences into that narrative being like, oh, well, that, that explains it, that explains it, that explains it. And within like a spiritual cult, it's more, um, it, it reframes coincidences that may, it makes it seem like you were meant to be there. You meant to find that group and then serve a higher purpose sort of thing. And then within the trans community, the parallel might be, you know, all of these things that you've experienced in your life are reasons that, you know, 
you you must be trans and you must transition basically um and then to sort of other other things like that but it's it's that whole you can't ask questions um if you're if you're asking questions it's coming from like a lower place um and then doubt is coming from a lower place and anyway that that essay was something that i read within days of deciding to detransition where i <laughs> it's very long so i was sitting up at like 4 a.m reading this essay just being like holy shit <laughs> this explains everything that i've been through over the past 10 years and why it, it's just outlining something that i should have been able to see but i couldn't see until someone else pointed it all out to me say james lifton is the author Robert J. Lifton is uh, the person who wrote, um, he, ca he came up with the criteria for thought reform. Uh, the author of that essay that specifically, and she didn't call it a cult either. She said that she used the phrase unhealthy relationship dynamics or unhealthy group dynamics, which makes more sense. And I think she's also said, you know, the trans community doesn't really qualify as a cult because there's no leader. It's more of a, it's just more of a, the whole uh, group thing. Um, but there are people in the community that are sort of made to be, what's the word, more credible than others. And I think um, if you're in like a social justice place, there is a push to have trans women be considered, um, they have to be centered at all times, they have to be the authorities. So they, they have are considered to have more credibility within um, the trans community than trans men. And I know you guys have talked about that as well, um, where trans men are basically being pushed aside in, in favor of trans women speaking for the whole trans community. So um, she goes into that as well. And it was, it was something that I had definitely experienced when I was like basically still on Tumblr, for example. Um, there's, there's almost a fear of getting angering trans women basically and it uh it puts you in a position where you can't really talk about your own experiences as um someone who's female basically because uh i i was told you know so basically i was told that i had never experienced misogyny because i was because i was a man basically they're like oh well you never experienced misogyny in your life um but you know trans women who grew up as boys and then transitioned as like 30 year olds everything that they had experienced it must must have been misogyny it was because they were women the whole time and I don't know a lot of the the ideology just doesn't make sense in that way because you know it's um it's not like all of the people that acted sexist towards me when I was still presenting as a woman they 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 all they didn't all know that I was secretly a man. It was clearly misogyny. So stuff like that, where there were, they, it, it was a, they controlled the, the narrative a lot. It's like what you were saying uh, with that, that essay, the, the, the concept of um, just reframing words, like words that we all know, concepts we all understand and kind of just like turning them on their head. And it only makes sense in that group. Uh, when you were saying that, I was just thinking about how um, 
Helen Joyce and Grace Lavery have just agreed to have a debate, which is blowing my mind. But uh, if you think about it, because Grace Lavery lives in this world uh, where, where, where terms are defined like you just explained. Um, so it's like, how do you have a conversation, you know, when people with between people who are operating on the original understanding or, the, uh, you know, the kind of based in reality understanding of what misogyny is and what male and female are with somebody who's who's operating on these these inter intercommunity uh re completely repurposing of these terms um so it kind of adds to the whole insular nature nature of the group when you're when you're operating on completely different definitions than the uh than the external world and so yeah when you're trying to have a conversation by between people who are um yeah not sharing definitions we'll see how that goes Thanks so much. I'm just um, looking at the time, but thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with with you. It's been great to get to know you a little bit better and and hear more of your story. Um, you know, I follow the things that that you've written um, and your own blog, and you're obviously thinking about these things very deeply. And um, so I think you have a lot of of wisdom to share. Um, so I appreciate you coming on and and talking to us about it a little bit. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you guys bringing me on as well. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.